Well, hey, I want you to um, uh, take your Bible and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 24. Acts 24. Once you leave your finger there in Acts 24. We already heard, read for us Peter's challenge to be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you. So why don't you leave a finger there in Acts chapter 24, and then I want you to go back in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 9 and verse 15. This is after Paul's conversion. Acts 9. It's a prophecy that God reveals to Ananias. I'll read this. I have this verse on the screen. We'll read this, have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into chapter 24. Ananias says here, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, referring to Paul, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is God's word. Just turn back over to chapter 24 and let's ask God to help our time. Father, as we dive into your word, Lord, I ask for wisdom and I ask for grace now. Thank you for your spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would give us ears not to hear words that I would say or even in explaining a passage, but to take the words and apply them to us that um, I'm really just being a guide here. There's something that we can all feast upon in your word. And so, Father, I would ask that you would help us. I pray for those that would be um, having struggles in their own conscience or not taking opportunities to share the gospel or those that would be here that are not yet believers or not yet convinced of believing in Christ or almost Christians. I pray that they would not be like Agrippa and that they would believe on Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. There's certain words that uh, when someone would say that uh, they're dramatic words that conjure up a lot of different things. So when you hear the words, all rise, court is now in session, you, there's a lot of things that come to mind. Uh, I think it's, it's awesome how uh, and interesting how interested we are in the legal system. And, and there's kind of that debate about whether the, the media um, creates culture or just reveals and reflects culture. And I think there's a little bit of both, maybe in urban areas versus rural areas. It, it has more of one element than, than another. But um, uh, it, most of our favorite TV shows or movies often revolve around the courtrooms a lot or, or the legal system. Or, um, and, and what's funny is that our parents' favorite shows often revolved, whether that was Murder, She Wrote or Perry Mason or... 
you know, the detective shows that involve stuff like this. And, and I was talking to Jamie about this week, and we're like, yeah, it's funny because some of our the serious shows, the, the drama shows, are, 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 you know, have a lot to do with court scenes and things like this, as well as some of the, the funny shows that we like and the comedies and stuff like this. And, you know, and I'm, I'm sure there are some folks in here thinking about, you know, uh, Tom Selleck and Blue Bloods or something like that right now that, that comes to mind or, or, or however that might be. But we are very enamored with the court system, uh, seriously and funny things. And uh, what we're seeing here in Acts 24, 25 and 26 is three of the five trials that Paul goes under, goes through before he goes to Rome. Now, you say when you see that, there's a lot of passages, three chapters here. And the latter part of the book of Acts is very narrative and descriptive in, um, uh, in nature and about Paul's arrest and trials ultimately leading up to Rome. And so there's a, a, a repetitiveness uh, to what's going on. I mean, Paul's repeated his own testimony several times. In the, chapter 26, he gives the longest uh, account of his own testimony and his conversion that he shared and we've read that when we went through Acts chapter 8 and 9 and we've seen that a couple times in the last couple weeks as he repeats his testimony that I was on the road to Damascus and I this happened I saw this vision Paul Paul why persecutest thou me and Ananias comes and he goes through the story that you've heard several times now Uh, and so it's repeating here and um, and so how how we there are certain rules of how we interpret the Bible and Acts is a, is a tricky one because, uh, and, and this is where um, the, the type of literature, to go back to Bible class, determines how we interpret it, whether it's apocalyptic literature or a narrative. Or, and the book of Acts is a history book primarily. So we've got to make sure that we're interpreting it like a history book and not like an epistle. Um, and by, by that, I mean, it's describing things and it's, and it's a transition in history when things are changing. So there's things that are happening early on in the church that are different later on in the church. Um, and, and so you have to make sure you're fitting the epistles in what's going on in the epistles of the different cities he, he, he visits um, uh, as we're going through the book of Acts. And this is one of those things just that uh, we said this early on in our first few messages on the book of Acts, that to make sure that we're recognizing that these are descriptive passages and not always prescriptive passages um, that but now at the same time it is letting us look under the hood of the anatomy of the church in its infancy uh, so we learn lessons from that but you know I was joking with some folks early on um, uh, that I have I love milk chocolate and so I have a dish of Hershey's Kisses in my office and I have a tab on it that says holy kisses so I'm glad we don't continue in our culture to practice that because you know, if some of you guys want to come and greet me with a holy kiss, I might respond with the biblical laying on of hands and uh, <laughs> or something like that, you know. But, I mean, there, there, there's some things that are, you know, I'm, I'm glad we're not having some of the issues that are going on in the book of First Corinthians in our church. Uh, those are wonderful problems to not have going on. And, um, and so we have to recognize that, uh, that we're, it's descriptive rather than prescriptive in many ways. But these, and, and then we also, as we're, since it is history and narrative, a good way to grasp that as you're t- learn, teaching the Bible was, okay, so often when uh, we're in an epistle, you would look at like whatever the proposition that would be given or the verbs that would be giving a command or something to know and to outline our teaching. 
when it comes to a narrative or stories, uh, we look at scenes, kind of like in a movie or a TV show when the scene changes or something shifts. Well, here in these chapters, chapters 25, uh, 24, 25, and 26, they're all at Caesarea. They're all at the same place. So that's the main scene, but there's three different trials or episodes, uh, kind of things that take place in this larger scene. And so there are three scenes. There's three major events. There's Paul's trial at Caesarea before Felix. And we, that's where we left off last week, where he was there, and he had that, we talked about encouragement after a bad day, that Paul had been through so much, and he'd, he'd been so gracious before the, the church with James, he'd gone, gone, gone up with the haircuts with the four guys, he's gone there, he's falsely accused, they stir up this mob, he's, they're, they're, the Romans have to break it up, he tries to speak to them, he's taken, he's, he's, he's beaten, he's only because he claims to be, his, pulls out his Roman citizenship card, not literally but figuratively he pulls out his card and he and he's like hey i'm a roman citizen they can't flog him now so they take him and so they send him to the the sanhedrin he starts off he prays up he starts off chapter that chapter talking about his clear conscience before god and side of the face hitting upside it's illegal he responds in a very gracious godly way you whitewashed walls you're gonna be you know and and he's positive so that's where we were last week and he comes to the end of that, a long day, and Jesus meets him there in the barracks and encourages him about how he's going to be with him and he's going to testify to him in Rome. And so we, 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 we were there, and he goes down to Caesarea, and he meets this cat named Felix. Brunch. Okay. Um, so he has this trial before Felix, and then we'll see his trial before Festus. Who names their child Festus? I don't know. Obviously, this guy's parents did. But, uh, and then a trial before Agrippa, uh, and we'll see that. But all of this is fulfilling the prophecy that we read there in chapter 9, verse 15, uh, to Ananias that God had said, Jesus said there, if you saw those red letters, that this guy's my servant. He's going to testify me before kings. And so he, we see that being fulfilled in this passages, passage. He's going to give testimony of to Christ and his resurrection to two governors and a king. And in all this, we're going to see what drives Paul because he repeats it. So he starts off here in chapter 24. After five days, the high priest Ananias comes down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. He's a basically we don't we're not sure whether he's a Jewish man or a Gentile man that was employed by the Sanhedrin, but he's a lawyer. Um, and, and he's a very good lawyer. He's well-renowned as being an orator. I mean, this, he's, they're hiring this top gun trial attorney to come in for them and laid before the governor their case against Paul. And we're going to back up, but I want to skip down to verse 10. And when the governor had nodded, we'll go back to that earlier, he spoke to him. Paul replied, knowing that for many years you've been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. And he gives this, and he starts off here in verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which you've called a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, and will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So he calls this hope in God. Verse 14. And then I want you to skip over to chapter 26, verse 6. 
And he says, I now stand here on trial because of the, my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. And he's talked about his hope in the resurrection. Um, sometimes you'll see on a tombstone, in hope of the resurrection, that this hope of the resurrection is driving him, this hope in the promise of God, specifically the consummation of salvation history as God's promises are kept. That gives us hope and would drive us. So it, it is, he repeats this. So what does this hope produce in Paul or how does he live with this hope? And in these three trials, we want to see three points and three uh, challenges that want to apply to us in the time that we have together. And the first is this, to live with hope or what this hope produces him is living with a clear conscience before God and men. And in this, we see this here in the beginning. So we started off, and then we'll see that uh, to live provocatively, um, to provoke others. I was live provocatively, not act or dress or anything like that. And then take opportunities that God gives you. Those are the three things we'll look at this morning. That's our outline. So here we go with number one. Live with a clear conscience before God and others. So Tertullius, Esquire, <laughs> the... Uh, he, he, call, he calls here, and he gets up, and he stands up before um, Festus, or Felix, rather, to give this. And he says, um, and when he had been summoned, verse 2, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, <clears throat> since, through, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere we accept with all gratitude, but to detain you no further, I beg you in the kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we've seized him. And by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything which we accuse him. He's a good attorney. I mean, he is sly. He is. He, now, he starts off, and I can't pronounce it in Latin. It's like um, it's Captilia Bellaventi. It's basically the normal rhetorical form that you started off your speech with some flattery. To, and you had that, that first few seconds, that elevator part of the speech, to, to really grasp that dignitary, that ruler, the governor Felix here. Who's, I mean, the, these, these, these governors, these governors and kings, I mean, these guys, it was at their whim. I mean, you caught them in a bad mood. There was a bad day. You caught them in a good mood. I mean, so, so they'd start off and they're kind of like putting, putting it all out there. We're going to most noble Felix and start off with all these flatteries. Now, you'll notice that Paul doesn't do that, but he starts off with all these flatteries about Felix. And if you've ever had a salesman call you or talk to you, usually when there's a lot of hot air at the front end there's not much substance on the back end right so usually it's like oh we've got this and this and this and it's like you know and there's not much there and that's kind of where so he's he's got a lot of fluff there you know I imagine him with like a really wide tie that's like very shiny with a matching handkerchief and his hair with enough grease to fill up a Ford in it. That's how I imagine this guy here this the kind of a, a wheeler and dealer you know um um and so, uh, so, so, but if you notice what he did, I mean, you guys have read the story a couple times now of what happened with, um, with Paul. He, he limits it. He doesn't tell the whole deal. 
He's like, oh, well, this guy, this. He starts off, how this guy's a plague to us. That's his first charge. This guy's a plague. Now, I actually love how the older translations um, translate that. It calls him a pestilent fellow. You know, if you have a translation that says that, King James says that, a pestilent fellow, a pestilent fellow. I just like that word. It's kind of funny. Um, you hear the word pest in it. This guy's a pest, you know, and there's pestilence. You know, it's a, it's a disease going around. This guy's a pest, and he's got, and he, he, he's contagious. He's a pestilent fellow. You know, he's a plague to us, as, as we would say that in modern terms. Uh, basically, we're just annoyed by him. You know, they're just getting it out there. We're, we don't like this guy. He's a pest. And then, he has another charge, he's stirring up riots. He's the ringleader of this sect. Now, what he's trying to do is he's trying to, this, Jew, this sect of Jews, these followers of the this sect of Nazarenes, he's trying to separate Christianity off from Judaism. Uh, and, he, and he's trying to do this by saying there's this, because the followers of Jesus, Jesus is the Nazarene, so this Nazarene sect, and try, because you couldn't have a new religion outside of Roman authority. So if he can like make that these followers of Jesus are separate than Jewish, Jews and Judaism, then it's this illegal sect. So he's trying to separate that off and then say that he's desecrated their temple. So he gives these three charges. And Paul, in his defense, answers these three charges, but he does it, I mean, not only just with, with, with prudence and wisdom and very skillfully how he answers it, but more importantly, he does it with a clear conscience and with, an ide- with a heart to get the gospel in there. So he uses these legal squabbles as a means to present the gospel as he's getting the gospel to Rome. And, God, you, and, and Paul uses these interactions and God through him to, to, to take a chance to proclaim the gospel. And so he witnesses to the grace of God and warns them of rejecting that. So, in, so we come to Paul's uh, response. He says, I will cheerfully make my defense in verse 10. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days. You can count them up. I mean, this is only 12 days since this happened that he went up to worship in Jerusalem. They didn't find him disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you that they bring now bring this up against me. He later on says, and actually the guys, that the, the Asia Minor Jews that are there, the Jews from Asia, they're not even here. I mean, at least the guys that accused them aren't even here. So, they're, he's, so Paul skillfully is saying, they're not even following their own rules here. They're, those guys aren't here. The accusers are supposed to be here. They're not here. They're the ones breaking the law here. But you know, we're going to skip that. But if you notice, all the stuff about how they beat Paul and all this, Tertullius left all that out. He's only presenting it one-sided. He's only given half the, the, the matter there. What's going on there? What's, what, why, why does Tertullius do that when he presents his case against Paul with his flattery in there? Well, because he probably just got done listening to Kenny, and he knew that, you know, you got to know when to hold him and know when to walk away and know when to run, right? You know, so he's like, hey, I'm just going to put a little certain of it out there and see how this goes with, the, with Felix. And so he charges him these things in verses 5 to 6, and Paul responds to those three charges But he comes down to this. He says, verse 14, but this I confess. Oh, this guy, this is what we've been waiting on. Here's this guy's going to confess. Finally, we don't care what the substance is, but we got the headline, right? That'll, That'll print. Prisoner confesses. 
This I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect. You notice what Paul's doing there. They're trying to separate Christianity from Judaism, and he's saying that they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Uh, now, I kind of want to laugh here. I want to pause here because these are Pharisees and Sadducees, and we already talked about how the Sadducees know this. I kind of want to laugh because I almost think there's a little twinkle in Paul's eye when he says this with the Sadducees in the room because they, cut, they, they have to align themselves with the Pharisees and be like, yeah, 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 even though it's like, you know, they, they, they don't believe in this resurrection. He's like, hey, you know, and then he, and both the just and the unjust. So I always make pains, verse 16, to have a clear conscience towards God and toward men. He makes pains to have a clear conscience towards God and towards men. So he goes and says, now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. He refers to that offering that they brought from the churches in Asia Minor. And while I was going, they found me and purified in the temple and with, without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia... They ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me or else let those men themselves say what wrongdoing they found me when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. Now that statement right there is one of the reasons that led me to our message last week of thinking that Paul's kind of saying, you know what, I, I cried out in anger and rash response to the Sanhedrin before the thing there. He's like, I have a clear conscience. I haven't done anything except that one thing. I did cry out. He's just keeping a clear conscience before God. And then, uh, but Felix, having rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. So Paul points out the problems with their argument, and he connects it to the ancient faith. He connects the way he is following their faith with following Jesus. This is so important that he does this here. He does this with Festus. He does this with Agrippa. He unites the faith of Christ, believing in Christ, with that which is ancient. From Adam. From Abraham. And I point this out because that we want to keep the entire New Testament, the entire Old Testament, that it is all profitable for us, and we need it all. There is an emphasis in our day of wanting to unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament. Paul would not be fitting into that crowd. He is literally, they're trying, the court system's trying to unhitch it, and he's trying to hitch it back up. And he said, no, this is, I am worshiping the God, our God this way. And he's bringing it there. But he speaks of his conscience. And we mentioned this last week. Um, don't violate your, that your conscience is like an alarm clock. It needs to be set and sometimes reset to, to Scripture. But don't violate your conscience. Don't. Um, he's able to admit fault. He, he makes this honest confession. I'm confessing this, and, and except there is this one thing. I do need to let you know. Um, so whenever... Um, it's an example to us. If you have charges brought up against you, remain calm and admit those things and um, tell the truth. So, but I want to ask you this morning, do you have a clear conscience before God and man? Do you have a clear conscience before God and man? 
I can't imagine what a weird idea this was when Paul brings this up. I have a clear conscience. I'm exercised myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. They, you have Tertullius here, who's the biggest blabbermouth, and he doesn't know what a conscience is at this point. And it's probably so, his conscience is so seared, but deep down he's like, a clear conscience. <laughs> Who has that? I mean, he lies for a living, right? And the Pharisees and Sadducees, they know they've trumped up these charges and have mixed things up. And I mean, uh, they, they, they know this. And Felix, Felix is known. I mean, by the way, the things that Tertullius said about Felix, not true. He was actually a terrible, he was a slave that had become a governor. And they said that he had a uh, king's power with a slave's heart. And, and I mean, in fact, one of the, he got recalled back to Rome for how terrible a job he was doing and oppressing people. There's a lot of stuff. You can kind of read your old history books um, about, about that stuff. He was doing a terrible job job and so all that Tertullius had said about him was was totally just fabricated fluff um but 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 when, so these guys are here and Paul's talking about these three these these groups of guys and Paul's talking about having a clear conscience um and that's got to hit them so do you have a clear conscience it's important to have a clear conscience most importantly before God do you have a clear conscience before God before God's bar do you have a clear conscience and the good news about the gospel is that God judges us at his bar, not for what we've done, but according to what his son's done for us. And so as, the, as old Adrian Rogers said, God doesn't grade on the curve. He grades on the cross. That when before God, I just look to Christ. Now, you, have to con- you need to have confessed and believed and found yourself in Christ and brought those sins to theirs. But do you have a clear conscience before God? Have you confessed? That should be a, a normal pattern of the Christian's life in your, in your prayer time. If you're not a believer, that, to have a clear conscience before God, what, what joy and relief and freedom that would be to have a clear conscience before God. That you, you need to find a refuge for your conscience somewhere. And the gospel is saying that that refuge for your conscience is to bring all of that, uncover it all, bring it to the cross, and cling there. And let God grade on the cross, not hoping he'll grade on a curve. But then, he says, I have a conscience not just before God, but also before men. Christians ought to be people of integrity. I mean, the, the early Christians didn't just out think their opponents paul's not just outthinking these guys in in his response legally he's also outliving them i mean and this is people get so ticked off when someone's living above reproach in this way and this is why it's so crucial that 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 that, that your life backs up your mouth because you know as the old song says your walk talks and your talk talks but your walk talks louder than your talk talks right your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. This is, it's, so, it's so crucial. That's why the scriptures have it so crucial for leadership in the church. That there's above reproach. And it doesn't mean you're perfect. That means that Christians ought to lead the way in resisting sin and repenting of sin. That, that a godly Christian is someone who just is an example of how to resist sin in their life and how to repent of sin in their life. So I ask, could you be found guilty of other crimes than being a faithful Christian? Do you know what is, is, is a very rewarding thing? Is when you 
get passed by a police officer and you don't get, have to get nervous. And you know how you can do that? Make sure your registration's up to date. Make sure your sticker's there the way it ought to be and make sure you're not driving over the speed limit. And you don't have to get nervous. It, it takes a lot of stress out of being on the road. Now, I'll admit, sometimes even when I know I'm doing those things right, I still hit the brakes when I see, when I pass them or whatever, but just because you're, whatever. But like, but it take, but you don't have to, you know, you're not always worried about, you know, what happens if, if, if you get an audit or what happens if they come and check on this? What happens if mom and that mom comes in and checks to see if my room's clean? If it's clean, you don't have to worry. What happens if your wife looks on your phone? If you're not doing anything you shouldn't be doing, you don't have to worry about it. So, do you have a clear conscience before God and before men? The most powerful defense of Christianity is often the, the lifestyle, the blameless lifestyle of Christians. And there may be some folks here that in this room, and, I, and I'm just telling you, God had, has had to work. I'm not perfect in this area by any means, but God has it's been a long-term process of, of, of getting this in your crawl to, ha, to, to work hard, to have a clear conscience before God and towards men. And that means that some people may, may here may need to make some confessions. You might need to write letters. You might need to pay some money back. And it might be for piddly things from way back in the day. It may be, you, you might need to write a high school principal back about cheating on a geometry test when you were in high school. I did that like 10 years after the fact. <laughs> and it may be that you need to call somebody and pay, you know, I never paid you for this and I owe you this. Um, in, in recent years, I've, I've had like, you know what, I stole this guy's book. I mean, I asked to borrow it, but I never gave it back, which is the definition of stealing. So I need to give him a new book. And so I'm like, I found his address. I stalked him on Facebook. And I found his address, and I sent him an, uh, that book and another one on Amazon. And, and then he's like, well, I was like, hey, man, I borrowed this book from you like back in the day. I never gave it back, and I owed you, and I just felt really, I, I just want to have a clear conscience. And he's like, oh, I don't need it. I'm like, no, but I need to have a clear conscience. It's worth 19 bucks. Bye. You know, and, and, um, and, um, Work to have a clear conscience. It's a relief to have a clear conscience. Husbands before your wife. Wives before your husband. Don't keep secrets. Have a clear conscience. Paul says, I work hard to have a clear conscience. I take pains to have a clear conscience towards God. Towards both God and man. So what are you going to need to do to have a clear conscience? To move on, secondly, um, live provocatively, this hope that Paul has. So, so he's there with Felix. Felix delays things. He, he has his wife, Drusilla, uh, who was Jewish, sent for Paul, and he's basically in, under house arrest for two years, and they come back. And Paul argues with them, and he, he reasons with them, verse 25, about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. <laughs> Excuse me. Felix is alarmed. He says, go away. Present me with an opportunity. I will summon you. And it says that he had hoped for a sum of money or a bribe. So for two years, he's there and he reasons with Felix and 
Drusilla. Now, Drusilla was not his first wife. I think he was on a second marriage. She was on a third. She'd been married to one of the Herods. Uh, he, I, evidently, historically, she was a knockout. She was a very attractive, but very young and very promiscuous. A lot of lust involved. He actually convinced her to leave her husband to be with him, and so she was his wife. And and so there, so these people. So for him to come and talk to them about the things that they talked about uh, is, is huge. But but so then so they're but they're still wanting to talk to him, and he's looking for a bride. But he's also like there's something here so then he passes on the scene festus comes as the new governor he's what's going on with this guy paul and then they bring in agrippa and bernice and they each in each of the episodes you can take time to read them later that they're they're wondering well they want to meet with paul and what's going on but they always have this question like what's going on with this guy paul what makes him tick what's the deal with him felix festus agrippa bernice all of them they're always asking these type of questions see paul's manner of life provoked people to ask a question We read there in Peter where Peter says to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you. Now that presupposes something that there's people seeing hope in you and asking something about it. And so, I mean, somewhat, does your life provoke people to ask what's the difference about you? The manner, the way you live, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, the way you, I mean, is there something about there that, that, that's like, you know, um, just last night I was up in Morgantown for Kerrigan's violin and there was a family there and, I, and the way they lived, the way they interacted with one another, I was like, I bet they're Christians. And, and, and it was something about that. And I saw, and, and I went up to the, the dad afterwards and was talking to him and found out he's a pastor. And, I, you know, and, and I was like, oh, wow, I could tell the way your girls acted, the way they behaved, the way you act, interacted with them. There was something about your life that provoked that. And I was like, how, has that ever happened to you? I mean, how long has it been since something like that happened to you? I mean, in, in the way you were, I mean, people spend the most of their amount of their time in the marketplace, in their workplace. And, and so those of you that are, that are in the marketplace a lot during the week, I mean, this is a huge opportunity to let your light show shine before men. Um, I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. I mean, you need to do your best. The way you live is a way that provokes people. The way you spend your money. I mean, I mean, the world ought to look at Christians and think the way you spend your money is just weird. Um, uh, I was talking in, in the midweek Bible study that latched onto this, that, um, that, that a Christian, if you're living and following God, you just got to bank on that you're going to live three steps behind anybody that makes the same amount of you in a secular world. Uh, th- th- you're going to live three steps. One, you're not going to go into debt. I mean, crazy debt, you know, like besides like, you know, normal things you know, that'd be acceptable. You, you, you're you're going to be giving. You're going to be gracious. You're going to be generous. Um, and, and, and you're going to be saving for the future because Proverbs tells us those things are wise. So you're they're, they're one, two, three. You're going to be three steps behind. So if someone else that makes the same amount of money, you're just, I'm going to be three steps behind and be okay with that. And they're going to be like, wait, what, what, we make the, oh, you, oh, that's weird. You do that? Um, it's going to provoke people towards that. Uh, so are you capitalizing on the platforms you have to give light in your life? And then the final thing I want to point out in these sections is that Paul uses these interactions as a chance to proclaim the gospel. He witnesses to the grace of God, and he warns of consequences. So when, he's, when Agrippa comes, and Agrippa wants to meet with him, of course, they talk about doing it up in uh, Jerusalem when, when um, 
Festus comes, uh, and then Paul uh, uh, appeals to Caesar. Uh, it's an old law that he could do that because, I mean, he's been under house arrest. He's been kind of waiting for two years. I mean, it's like, okay, uh, what, are, what are my chances? I, mean, I, know, I know they're going to kill me if I go up to Jerusalem, so I'll, I'll appeal to Caesar. 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 Um, I'll appeal to Caesar. Caesar. And then Agrippa does the same thing. They, they talk about this. So anyway, so in chapter 25, verse 23 to the end of chapter 26, we see Paul's longest defense and his last defense sharing his testimony of faith, what happened to him. He, so, and so he starts off in verse 20, chapter 26, verse 4. He says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, and knowing by all the, all the Jews, they have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. So he's establishing his um, Jewish heritage, that he's not some Johnny-come-lately, some new religion. This is rooted in the ancient faith of their fathers. And then he gets verse 9, and he talks about how he persecuted the church. And then when he gets to verse, verse 10, or verse 12 rather, he, that he talks about his encounters with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And that he's fulfilling the calling that Jesus has had going to verse 18 of chapter 26. And all these sorrows and all these different things, so, so being under house arrest, being brought before this group and that group, Paul uses all these sorrows, all these things as doorways for the gospel to fulfill the prophecy that he would bring the gospel to rulers and judges and kings. And we need to remember this, that King Jesus rules over everything. And one of his purposes in our afflictions and sorrows is to work in us, to change us for his purposes. But one of his overarching purposes is that he has a plan to get the gospel beginning in Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then we get to be a part of that. Um, So thinking of... Jesus rule in that way and Jesus plan in that way how should that change our view of trials God might be using my trials to further his advance his gospel I mean that should make us more alert to evangelistic opportunities when you're going through something when you're stuck somewhere when you're in the waiting room maybe two years under house arrest you know um maybe when Connie's parole officer comes and visits she can share the gospel with him just That's going to get me in trouble one day, I know. Um, so while waiting with Felix, he, as Casting Crown sa- song says, I'll serve you while I'm waiting. He speaks to them. Remember that um, Felix and uh, uh, Drusilla, they, they were just a debauched lifestyle. And Paul talks to them. He said they're about, uh, back in 24, he, a righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment. Paul presented with them not just a theology of you need to be saved and you need to one, two, three, pray after me, but he talked to them about personal morality, about righteousness, about God's design for ethics and marriage. And he emphasizes God's holiness and the requirements of those that inhabit this planet that they pertain, God's standards pertain to everybody regardless of what, what, what creed or kindred they're from. He has certain standards for all humanity would be in his design. And so he told these two to follow that these two that are so used to following their passions and living it up about self-control. 
And he teaches them this. And he teaches them about coming judgment. That you're not going to, you might figure it out of here and you coaxed her away from her husband and now you were a slave and now you're a governor here and you rule all of this and you got this nice palace here in Caesarea. But there's a judgment coming that you won't be able to escape, Felix. And then before Festus and Bernice. And Bernice, I mean, this is a more messed up situation um, that um, Bernice is... Um, uh, anyway, they, they, they've just got, uh, uh, anyway, Agrippa, let me go, go to this one here. Um, so he, he's before Agrippa as well. Now, this is a scary thing to go before Agrippa. So Agrippa is fourth in this lineage of, you've known of Herod the Great. Uh, so he's like a great-grandson of Herod the Great. So, so, so you've got a great-great-grandfather of this guy who beheads John the Baptist, and then you have the Herod of they, trying to kill Jesus and all the things going on with, with Jesus, and then you have the other Agrippa I that kills James, uh, the Apostle James that we saw earlier in Acts, and now we have the second here, Agrippa here with it, and he's with Bernice, who wasn't his, was his sister, but there's this, all these rumors of an incestuous relationship, and there's a lot of messed up stuff going on here, and he's before these folks, but but before all of this, he uses it as an opportunity to share the hope he has in the resurrection because these are Jews that have this hope. And so all of chapter 6, he rings out this, cent- this resurrection as central to Paul's ministry, this hope that the Old Testament prophets awaited. This is his hope. That, and, and so he's saying that this, this resurrection, that God is in the business of bringing dead things to life, and you can be part of that, that this, you can have this personal resurrection, like pictured in baptism, that you can have this resurrection here. And then he gives this before Agrippa, and I, I, here's what I want to, um, I'm skipping ahead. I want to get to um, chapter 26, verse 18. Um, he says, deliver you from your people, verse 17, and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. They're sanctified by faith in this one. And so he's going to persuade, so there's an aspect of persuasion here in his evangelism, to open their eyes, and there's the elements of salvation here, to turn from darkness, so repentance, to God. Repentance, faith. He preaches the gospel. Repent, verse 20. Repent, but declared first those of Damascus, when, then in Jerusalem and through all the region of Judea and also the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So he preaches the gospel in this way. Repent, turn to God, show that with deeds. Back up your repentance with change of life. And Agrippa knew the scriptures. He goes on and talks about that in Christ must suffer and that may be the first to rise among the dead, that he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. But I want you to skip down to verse 28. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time you would persuade me to be a Christian? Or another way that's translated is, almost thou persuadest me. The, the, the language there is like in a short amount of time or a minute way or almost or like not really there, but you're going to try to do this. And, and then Paul replies, he says, Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but 
Uh, also, all you who hear me this day might become as I am, except for these chains, you know, the detail of the chains he's in prison. But everything else, I want you, yeah, I want you to believe this faith that I have. Now notice he, he addresses this, if you go back through and read this chapter, he addresses this personally to Agrippa and Bernice. I mean, he, he's, he's taken this opportunity, he's taken the opportunity to get the gospel to individuals, to talk to them. And so, um, he, he goes at it. Agrippa knew the scriptures. He says, you, you believe the prophets, right? I know you believe the prophets, Agrippa. And Agrippa's having to kind of, oh yeah, well I do. And so, Agrippa gives an intellectual assent to the Bible. But he remained unrepentant, unwilling to submit to the righteousness of God. This is where a lot of people would call Agrippa an almost Christian, almost persuaded. He says, Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those that were sitting with them. And they had withdrawn and said to him, This man is doing nothing, deserving death or punishment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. So it ends with, Agrippa rejecting the gospel that Paul's taken the opportunity. But Paul's done an incredible thing here that we can learn from. He's shown that this hope he has in the resurrection, that the promises of God. And I love this. This is where, when we talk about like biblical theology, and don't let that, those big words like that scare you. He, what he's talking about is, is this redemptive sal- salvation's history. That, that God's had this plan in the prophets this promised Messiah brought in Jesus and in this resurrection to come in Jesus in the consummation of his kingdom and that this hope is everything for the Christian. It's not just here and now. It's not just the here and now. It's it's the yet. It's the already. It's the not yet. And in that, his hope has driven him to live with a clear conscience, to live in a way that provokes others to wonder what is the deal with this guy and to take opportunities, whether they be with a king, whether how bad or how scary it is, to share the gospel. And so I ask you, how are you doing with your opportunities to share the gospel? But before that, I want to go back to this, uh, this uh, Agrippa. He rejects this. He's an almost Christian. What would an almost Christian look like today? Probably be someone who comes to church. Someone who gives assent to the Bible. And says, yeah, that's true. Yeah, Jesus may have died for people. But what are you depending upon? Or are you saying, I need this and I need, well, I've been this. And, and there's many ways that an almost Christian would look today. Reflecting on this in the 1870s, P.P. Bliss, the noted hymn writer who wrote and did a lot of things with D.L. Moody, um, was in a town where uh, there was a pastor, a pastor that he really liked, was preaching a lesson on King Agrippa. And um, right after that, P.P. Bliss penned the words of the old hymn that was really popular in the early last century and still around some today, almost persuaded. Almost persuaded, and this is Agrippa. He's someone who's almost persuaded. A short time, you're going to try to make me a Christian? I'm not really, I'm here and here, but I'm not all the way there. Um, and the words go like this, almost persuaded now to believe. Almost persuaded Christ to receive. Seems now some soul to say, go spirit, go thy way. Some more convenient day on thee I'll call. That's an almost Christian. Ah, oh, maybe one of these days I'll get right with God. I'll get saved later on. Not right now. 
Almost persuaded, come, come today. Almost persuaded, turn not away. Jesus invites you here. Angels are lingering near. Prayers rise from hearts so dear. Oh, wonder, come. Almost persuaded, harvest is past. Almost persuaded, doom comes at last. Almost cannot avail. Almost but to fail. Sad, sad, that bitter wail. Almost but lost. There will come a time that you can't escape that accountability of that judgment that Paul's preached. It's last. You're done. And you don't know when that day is going to be. So if you are an almost Christian, today is the day to believe, to be done with the wondering and worries and what do people think and all that, to put your faith in Christ. And so as we close, Christian, do you have a clear conscience? Is your life one that would make people ask what, what drives you? What's the difference in your life? Is provoke them to something to ask about a hope? Are you asking, are you using the opportunities that God's given you? Are you taking advantage of the opportunities that God's given you to share the gospel? Um, and then are you an almost Christian? And please don't be one today. Let's pray.